Okay, so we are resuming the foundation class, and tonight um, I'm going to be doing a lot of reading right from the lesson because this part, I don't think I could do it justice without sticking real close to the notes. Um, and you're going to have to pay attention because this is a... Uh, at least for, for me, the first time I went through this, it was, it was a little bit of a challenge. So um, I'm sticking real close to the notes because I'm not satisfied with my own understanding um, how thorough it is of what we're going to talk about tonight. Mm -hmm. So we're going to talk about God as the master communicator. I heard uh, Brother Readout say something one time somebody asked him a question, how do you know when it's God speaking to you? You know, you know what he said about that? He said, it's simple. If there's any doubt, then it wasn't God. Aren't there people who have no doubt and it isn't God? Or is there doubt? Oh, well, that, I'm sure that's possible. But if you have any doubt, then it wasn't God. And that speaks to his communicative abilities. He knows how to talk to us. He designed us. He designed our faculties, our, the way our brains work, so he understands. And not only that, for those of us, you know, we're copies of copies of copies of copies of copies of Adam, so, you know, we're not quite what Adam and Eve were. We're, we're you know, slowing down and a little bit broken down, and things don't work quite the way it did then. But God, not only does he know the way the individual or the, the human mind works, he knows the way the individual mind works. So he knows how my mind works. He knows what my capabilities are, my limitations. So he knows how to talk to us. He really does. He knows how to communicate to us in a way that's absolutely crystal clear and there's no doubt. So I like that. Um, I like that thought. If there's any doubt, it wasn't God because God knows how to get his point across. Sometimes we struggle in communication with one another, and maybe we struggle trying to form a thought. Um, well, you know, I'm not really sure. And we, you know, trying to grasp for words, trying to communicate what we're saying to somebody, and maybe we get the job done and maybe we don't. God doesn't have that limitation. He is able to communicate exactly what he wants because he can bypass all of our faculties and our limitations and get right down to where we receive it. So he is the master communicator. There isn't anybody like him. So um, we're not going to go through any review, but we did talk about the eight attributes of deity, his God's unique attributes, okay, which were um, omniscience, omnipresence, uh, sovereignty, love, all of those things that are attributes that are his alone. And while those attributes make it impossible for us to come to know him, they also prove him able to make us to know him. We can't know absoluteness. We can't know transcendence, you know, that which is beyond everything. But he is able to make himself known to us, and he's revealed himself. He is the master communicator. He's defined himself in terms that we can understand. And that's so important to know. God has defined himself in this book in terms, and that's the whole point to this, for him to reveal himself to us in terms that we can understand. So um, 
Cindy, why don't you start with John 1, 1, and then um, we'll just kind of work our way around the circle as we get to these verses. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Okay, that's pretty clear. There was nothing before there was the Word, and in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, but also the Word was God. John 1, 14, Christy. Okay, so what in John 1, 1, what was the Word? The Word was God. In John 1, 14, what happened to the Word? It was made flesh. God became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory. We saw Him, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Revelation 1, 8. Okay, I don't know if, um, if it was Tuesday night, but it was within one of the last couple of weeks when Pastor talked about the Alpha and the Omega. Remember that? So God has expressed himself here in human terms. That's what's going on in these verses. He is expressing himself to us in human terms. The man of Galilee, who we call the Christ, is the self-expression and the self-definition of God. Jesus of Nazareth is the ultimate communication of God to all creation. And we're going to spend some time talking about that very thing. Um, and as the Alpha and the Omega, like what Pastor said, whenever that was, uh, was that last Tuesday? Sunday. Sunday, okay. As the Alpha and the Omega, he is everything that words can express about God. That's what that uh, verse is saying in Revelation 1.8. Alpha is the first letter of the Greek alphabet. Omega is the last letter of the Greek alphabet. And the New Testament was written in Greek. And what that isn't just saying that he's the A to Z. That's kind of a, an, an English idea, the, the, the A to Z, you know, start to finish, whatever. That's not what this is saying. This is saying that he is everything that words can express about God. That's Jesus. All words of all language, any combination of letters that can refer to God are fully summed in the Alpha and the Omega, Jesus Christ. So he embodies all the fullness of the Godhead. God in becoming man made it possible for the finite minds of men to know him not just believe in him. Critical difference there. So as a man, Jesus Christ is the ultimate communicator. He not only fully communicates God's total being to us, but he is also the intercessor for men and the reconciler of humanity and deity. His humanity is the temple where God and humanity dwell in harmony and in unity. Okay? 1 Timothy 3.16. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. Okay, so back there in John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. And then in John 1.14, that Word, which was God, became flesh, 
And that's what Paul is saying here. He says, without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness, that God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up in the glory. So we see Jesus Christ is the ultimate communicator, but he is also the ultimate communication. Got to chew on that for a little bit, okay? He is the ultimate communication of God into creation, all right? Uh, so just, just hold on to that for a second. We're going to expand on that. So as the word of God, he is the fullness of the one who expresses the concept. As the alpha and the omega, he is the totality of what God can express about himself. Everything that can be spoken, everything that can be written, all combination of letters, words, sentences, paragraphs, in every language in heaven and on earth that pertain to God are fully and completely expressed in the Alpha and the Omega, which is Jesus Christ. Is everybody, are we, everybody sticking with this so far? And yet, he is absolutely more than this. Now, we're going to talk about something called the rules of translation. There are, when you're translating anything from one language into another, like translating uh, the scriptures from Greek and Hebrew into English, there are rules that you have to follow, okay? So we're going to talk about those here in a minute after we go through a few scriptures. Revelation 3.14 says, and unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Now that's Jesus Christ. He is the faithful and true witness, and he is the beginning of the creation of God. That word beginning is a really cool Greek word called arche, and we won't get into that right now. But it's one of those words that has a lot of depth to it. Uh, John 1 18. Which no man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. Okay. So, no man has seen God. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. And that word declared is another one of those Greek words that has a lot of depth to it. It just doesn't mean that he spoke about him. He actually pronounced and unfolded and rehearsed him to creation. Okay. Uh, John 14, 7 through 9. Okay, and that's a cool story to read a few verses before that, but um, that's pretty straightforward right there. Philip says to him, look, just show us the Father. I'm, I'm, I'm missing something. I'm not, would you, would you just show us the Father and, and, you know, that'll do. And Jesus says, haven't I been with you long enough yet? I've, I've been with you, you all this time and yet you still don't know 
me? Philip's talking about the Father. Jesus says, I've been with you all this time and you still don't know me? He that has seen me has seen the Father, which means I'm all you're ever going to see of him. No man has seen God, but when you've seen me, you've seen him. In fact, when you've seen me, you've seen all you're going to see of him. Because everything, all the fullness of the Godhead is in Jesus Christ. So these men who became the translators of the scriptures from the original Greek and Hebrew into English, <clears throat> first of all, that was a monumental task. It really was. Both biblical Greek and biblical Hebrew are not easy languages to translate into English. And so they did us both a great service and a great disservice. There was a day when God's people didn't have generic names for their creator like we do, like God. That's a generic name. You can, you know, it can be a big G God, it can be a little G God, but you can, uh, that's just a generic title. While later generations of Hebrews began substituting generic nouns in place of speaking the sacred name, they came to consider those nouns to be equivalent proper names when used of the Creator. So this is a little bit of history here. So they would speak the generic names of Adonai and Elohim, which were also words that could be used of things other than God. And in, uh, it, even in times, they used the word Baal. But each of these are nouns that also apply to beings and gods other than the one whose name they sought to honor. So the use of generic nouns rather than the revealed names was man's idea, not God's, okay? It led to the Hebrew people forgetting the actual pronunciation of the sacred name. And it brings to mind the warning of the psalmist, which uh, in Psalm 44, verses 20 and 21, that's not on our sheet here, but it says, that's what this is talking about, this verse here. It says, if we have forgotten the name of our God, or stretched out our hands to a strange God, shall God not search this out? For he knoweth the secrets of the heart. How could people forget the name of their God? Well, they did. They certainly did. So the English words Lord and God are the equivalent generic nouns that most of the English speaking word applies to the Creator today. And the Hebrew scriptures recorded specific proper nouns, actual names with specific meanings by which the identity of the Creator was identified. But most of these names, if not all of them, recorded in the Hebrew text of the Bible were names revealed by the Creator Himself and intended to reveal something about His own character and His own nature to His people. And each one of these names expressed a specific meaning and it implied a certain relationship that the Creator intended His people to have with Him. Okay. So unfortunately for us, our Bible translators rarely brought over these illuminating names for us from the Hebrew of the ancient texts into our English today. Rather, they chose to give us the generic titles of God and Lord, and much is lost because of that. So we can ask questions, which Lord and which God, Adonai, Elohim, but there's seldom a need to ask which Yahweh. There's only one of those, only one. And this may be one reason that there used to be the stringent requirement that um, one 
had to be proficient in ancient Greek and Hebrew languages prior to obtaining ordination into the ministry, even prior to, to being recognized as a minister of the gospel. So, nevertheless, we do owe a great deal to those men who uh, dedicated themselves to bringing the Word of God to us in a language that we can read, hear, and understand. I don't know if you guys know a lot about the history of the King James Version, but um, the, the King James Commission was in 1611, obviously, and prior to that, there was a guy named William Tyndall, kind of a uh, household name almost, but he was a master linguist in like seven languages. And it, and it was, he was, I think he was a German, German, English, um, French, Spanish, biblical Greek, biblical Hebrew, Latin, I think that was it. And he spoke those languages as though they were his native language. He didn't just, I mean, he was a master linguist. And so, and he was also a devoted Christian, and he spent most of his life translating, in, in hiding, translating the scriptures into the common man's language back then, which was illegal. The Catholic Church didn't like that, and he was killed for it. He was betrayed and killed for it. But like 75, what's that? What was he killed for again? For translating um, the scriptures into the common man's language, into English. And, um, but the King James Commission got a hold of his writings and 75% or so of the New Testament is all William Tyndall's. It wasn't King James, his commission. They, they looked at his work and they said, we can't improve upon this. But he died in 1530 something, I think. And, um, and his work was remarkable, but he literally gave his life to translating the scriptures. He, he, he moved, he kept on the move and people would put him up in hiding places in their homes so that he could work and translate and he died for it. There's a book called God's Bestseller that gives the history of him. That's an excellent book and it's actually a history of the King James Version. So um, all versions of the Bible in English are, in English are not equal even though each may have particular value. And it's important to distinguish between the source documents, the majority of the minority manuscripts, the age and the quality of the manuscripts, and it's equally important to recognize the particular biases of the translators and their motivations. That's one thing that you can never escape is translator bias. Everybody who attempts to translate something has a bias that's gonna find its way into um, what they're translating. So that's something that we have to understand. And back in these days, the vast majority of um, humanity was Trinitarian. And so the King James Commission translated the Bible from a Trinitarian bias, okay? Um, where are we at here? Westcott and Hort, who I think are the, own the copyright of the NIV, wrote that their purpose was to destroy the confidence that people had in the King James Version. Um, so that ought to make us suspicious of their work. 
The translators of the King James Version were working for a king known for his uh, predilection to kill those who contradicted him, and he was an Abbot Trinitarian. So if James was an Abbot Trinitarian and he hires these guys to translate the Bible, they're going to do what they're told under penalty of death. So you and I, we all have to give serious consideration to the nature of the translator's regard for the text being translated. We must not give the same credence to a paraphrase of the text as we do to a genuine translation. And the reason for that is we believe that God chose his words and he did it with care and he did it with purpose. That scripture in Proverbs says every word of God is pure. Every word of God means something, everyone that's in there. I appreciate the fact that um, most, um, see it doesn't even do it here, most um, versions of the King James will have the italicized words when there was a word added that wasn't in the original text. But that doesn't, um, that doesn't mean that every word that's not italicized is a direct quote from the, the manuscripts. In fact, one of the scriptures that uh, Pastor Thorson quoted from James was the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Well, that word, the words effectual and fervent are actually one um, Greek word, not two. So that verse carries a pretty different meaning from the original text, which means the prayer of a righteous man is effective. So that puts the emphasis on the focus on righteousness. So it's righteousness that creates an effective prayer, right? Whereas in the King James, it says the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. So it makes it sound like effectual and fervent. Okay, what does that mean? That's, that's what our target's gotta be. No, it's righteousness. So that's one of the examples where the King James kind of takes us in a little bit different direction than where we want to go. So, so would you say it's possible for a better translation to be written? Sure. Sure. So then why, so then why isn't it done? Is it because the people, the, bi the biases of the people who end up writing it? Then? Why hasn't it been done? Yeah. That's what a good about, question. What about, you shall never write unto the scriptures or take from the scriptures but that's like so you know where does that come in indeed <laughs> when 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 we attempt when somebody attempts to translate they need to take that into consideration and there are some people that say oh, well that's just in revelation it's not just in revelation it's in proverbs it's in deuteronomy add thou not to his words lest he reprove thee and thou be found a liar i think that's in proverbs well, it's in the whole bible yeah it's, it's reflecting the whole bible so it's in the beginning the middle and the end the it's it's clear that um, god doesn't want his word tampered with However, when translating from Hebrew, especially Biblical Hebrew and Biblical Greek into a Latin-based language, which is English, French, German, Italian, Spanish, those languages don't translate well out of, or Biblical Greek and Hebrew don't translate smoothly into those languages. In fact, I don't even think Biblical Greek and Hebrew translate smoothly into modern Greek and Hebrew. They're, they're different languages. Um, don't quote me on that though. One of, I know that, I think it's uh, 
Hebrew has actually undergone a couple of transitions. There's, there's ancient Hebrew, which is what the Bible's written in. There's middle Hebrew, which was an evolution of the Hebrew language in the time of Babylon, um, the Babylonian captivity. And then we've got modern Hebrew and modern Hebrew bears almost no resemblance whatsoever to ancient Hebrew. So when trying to translate from those languages into English, it's a big challenge. Like when that word arche that I mentioned, um, the beginning of the creation of God. Well, that makes it sound like a fairly simple concept, but that word arche means much more than just beginning. It's literally the impetus to create. So he wasn't just at the beginning. He was the beginning. Jesus Christ was the beginning. That's what that, the word arche means. And yet when the translators are looking at this word, you know, there are some of these words that it would almost take a whole paragraph for us to understand what they mean. Koinonia, the Greek word translated uh, fellowship in that you read about in the book of Acts. That's a very deep word. And so they had a big job trying to translate from, from some of those big words with a lot of depth to it into English where, you know, quinonia, there is no English word that encapsulates what quinonia is. There's no English, English word that encapsulates what RK is. So it was a big challenge. And um, certainly can't fault them for that, but there are times when they do have to add words. That in, in searching for the right combination of English words, there's one Hebrew word or one Greek word, and yet it takes maybe several um, uh, English words to try and grab that. So in the, in the strictest technical sense, yeah, they're adding a couple of words, but that's what it takes to bring the meaning of the, uh, of the original text over into English. Big, big challenge. So, yes, sir. Um, when you read Strong's, like I have the Strong's Concordance app, uh -huh. it, when every, almost like every other word is highlighted because it ha undergoes, a, it has a Greek meaning to it. Yeah. So the, then there's, there's the dictionary version definition, then there's the Strong's versions. The Strong's definition, the attempt to explain the depth of the word. Strong's is a very simplified um, dictionary. The, the definitions that you get from the strong concordance are very simplified. Even strong's doesn't really encapsulate it. Sometimes you've got to go to, you, you have to go to lexicons like Thayer's and um, Kittles or something like that to really, there's guys that really dug deep into this and made it their life's work to, um, to try and create a lexicon that would give us the depth of some of those words. But Strong's, is, Strong's has its place to be sure, but Strong's isn't gonna give you the depth of a lot of these words. So basically, if I'm spending time playing video games, there's a good chance I'm not going to heaven anytime soon then. I don't know what you mean by that. I, well, it sounds like, it sounds like you, in order to actually understand God, you've got to dedicate your entire life to it, not just like an hour a day of it, which already seems like a lot to me. Yeah. want to do it, because the Bible isn't just like a video game. No, the Bible is something you actually got to put effort into. Yeah. Perhaps maybe that's my fault that I'm not used to putting effort into everything I do. Yeah. Still, it's well, it says, draw nigh unto God, and he will draw nigh unto you. So, you know, he... 
in my opinion, he will reciprocate our efforts. If we don't really care to know him, why would he reveal himself to me? But, you know, in the case of Moses, um, he was pretty determined. He was bold in his request in Exodus 33, you know. And, uh, you know, God honors that. He really does. He honors our desire to understand and know him. So we get out of this what we put into it is pretty much what it amounts to. So, but there again, um, it's not by our efforts and our searching and our, you know, digging into things that's going to bring a result. God has to reveal himself to us. There have been people who have memorized the, the scriptures, people who can quote books that don't know God because they just made it, they just wanted to know the Bible. They wanted to be able to quote it or, you know, whatever their motive was, it might not have been to really know and understand the Lord. So um, I don't think we should complicate it too much. It's a fairly simple thing. He wants to be known and he wants us to know him. And so um, he's gonna reward us according to um, our desire, I think. You know, to know God is the greatest experience. I mean, that's what we were made for. That's what he made humanity for. He, we were creatures that were made to know him. We'll never achieve our maximum potential in life outside of a relationship with him. We can achieve all kinds of things. We can make money. We can become famous. You know, I'm going to be famous because I'm on a podcast now. But we will never, ever achieve our full potential as human beings because we were created to be his. We were created to have fellowship with him and created to know him and outside of that knowledge of, of who he is. And that's the message of Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. The wisest of wise men has got nothing to brag about. The richest of rich men has nothing to brag about. The strongest and mightiest of mighty people has nothing to brag about. The guy that knows and understands God, he's got something to brag about. So that's probably a fire hose answer to a garden hose question, wasn't it? Mm -hmm. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> I ate two minutes. I, I ate three ice cream bars today, and I feel sick from it. Oh, okay. That's All right. Not much, All right. So. All right. Okay, moving on. So, like I said, we, we believe that God chose his words with care and with purpose. So, um, let's talk about this brief list of rules of translation. The rules to which any translator must adhere and uh, stick with this because there's a twist in the end. The rules to which any translator must adhere to without wavering if he's going to be a faithful and true witness and accurately convey the word of the Almighty. Rule number one, there's four rules here. Rule number one, the translation must not read or sound like a translation, but it must be read and sound like the thought originated in this new language, the translated language. Okay? Does that make sense? The translation must not sound or read like a translation. It has to sound like what's being conveyed originated in the, the language. Message. Yeah. The original message. Yes. And that was what, you know, the translators were trying to do is they weren't just, okay, the, the translation for this word, this Hebrew word 
goes into this English word. It wasn't just going word for word. It was broadening the scope of the scriptures and trying to determine the meaning. What was this, what was this verse or this chapter um, or this book trying to communicate to us? So there's a broader context and that's what determines how things get translated. Okay, so rule number one, the translation must not read or sound like a translation. It has to sound like it, uh, it originated in the new language. Rule number two, the translator must be faithful to the original author's personality and style and not intrude the translator's own personality and style into the text. I don't make it mine. I've got to make it sound like this originated, you know, that this came from the original author, but in my language, okay? Number three, the translation must produce the same effect on those who read or hear it as the original language did on those who read or heard it. That's a tall order right there. The translation must produce the same effect on those who read it in the new language as it did on those that heard it in the original language. It must produce the same stirring of spirit as the original, okay? And finally, um, the one rule of translation most translators have ignored, a translation versus a paraphrase or an interpretation must accurately bring over every word from the original into the new language as much as the new language can allow, okay? You don't leave anything out. Every word has got to be brought over, but done so in a manner that it accurately brings the meaning over, okay? Um, <clears throat> Matthew 4.4, 4, Luke 4.4, 4, Deuteronomy 8.3, they all say, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word. Not just most of the words, every word. Okay? Um, that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. And we are also, here's the list right here. We are also admonished not to take away from or even add one word to God's word. That's in Deuteronomy 4.2, Deuteronomy 12.32, Proverbs 30, verse 6, and Revelation 22.18. So, we arrive at three points of this message. Point number one, God is a language we can't speak. Okay, the transcendent God, this great big transcendent God who is beyond everything, okay? He is, Solomon said, the heavens cannot contain you and the heaven of the heavens cannot contain you, okay? He is a language that we cannot speak. I'm gonna go ahead and read a long uh, passage of scripture here found in Acts chapter 17. And this is Paul preaching on Mars Hill. It says now, uh, starting with verse 16, now while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was stirred in him when he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. Therefore disputed he in the synagogue, uh, disputed he in the synagogue with the Jews and with the devout persons and in the market daily with them that met him. And then certain of the philosophers of the Epicureans and of the Stoics encountered him. And some said, what will this babbler say? 
Others, uh, <clears throat> others, some, he seemeth to be a setter of forth of strange gods, because he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and they brought him unto Areopagus, saying, May we know this new doctrine whereof thou speakest? For thou bringest uh, certain strange things to our ears. We would know, therefore, what these things mean. For all the Athenians and strangers which were there spent their time in nothing else but to either or tell or hear some new thing. These people were hyper-religious, okay? They were serious about studying every god there possibly could be and acknowledging them with shrines, okay? Um, then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said, Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things ye are too superstitious. And that wasn't an insult. He was saying, you guys are very religious. He was acknowledging that. For as I passed by and I beheld your devotions, all these shrines, all of these statues honoring all these gods, I found an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God, whom ye therefore ignorantly worship. Okay, so they knew about Diana and they knew, you know, all of the false gods, but they also knew that there had to be some great big God that was unknowable. Some great big God who was bigger than all the other ones. He was intangible, untouchable, unknowable. They believed in the transcendent God. They just didn't know anything about him. And Paul said, you're on to something. You ignorantly worship him. Um... God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands, neither is worshiped with men's hands as though he needed anything, seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things, and hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on the face of the earth, and hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation. That's an interesting phrase there, but we won't get to that that they should seek the Lord, if haply they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as certain of your own poets have said, for we are his offspring. For as much as then we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is like unto gold or silver or stone, graven by art and man's device, and at the times, of, the times of this ignorance, God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent, because he hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, in that he raised him from the dead. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked and others said, we will hear of thee again of this matter. Okay, so the... the Epicurean and the Stoic philosophers were among some of the clearest thinkers of their age, and their philosophies had degenerated into mere pursuits of the flesh rather than the metaphysical and the moral. And in the early days of the rapid spread of Christianity, their seat was still there at Athens. And it was their habit to hear and consider every theory of life and the universe. And one of their more serious endeavors was to ensure that every god worshipped by men was given recognition with a shrine at Mars Hill. They were not narrow-minded, and their reasonings had come to some significant conclusions, and the most profound is revealed in the text. It was the springboard for this entrance of Christianity um, that Paul preached to them. Their considerations of the nature of each of these gods led them to conclude that there must be one god who is transcendent. 
one whose attributes set him apart and put him beyond the understanding of even the greatest of merely mortal men. And what they believed about God remains to this day as one of the most prized tenets of theology, that there must be one God who is absolute in his glory, his power, infinite in all capacities, eternal in existence, omnipresent, omnipotent, omniscient, one whose attributes put him beyond all the capabilities of men to know and understand. And the philosophers had no wish to ignore such a God, which led to their construction of this particular altar that caught the attention of Paul. And they were not acknowledging a God they didn't know about, but one whom their reasonings told them was unknowable because of his transcendence. Like I said, they were onto something. They understood that such a God would be indecipherable to men or a language men cannot speak. So Paul agreed with the philosophers at Athens that the true God indeed has such a glorious nature, but that he proclaimed and revealed himself as Jesus Christ. That was Paul's point. Yes, you are right. There is a transcendent God and he is unknowable, but he has made himself known in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is that magnificent transcendent God revealed, translated into language the creation can hear and understand. Remember, we're talking about rules of translation here. So the absolute, immutable, omniscient, sovereign, omnipotent, omnipresent, eternal, and morally supreme one who is generically referred to as God and Lord and who has always been acknowledged and worshiped as the unknown God because it is assumed that the finite minds of men cannot uh, be made to know the infinite. He has been perfectly translated for us in the person of Jesus Christ. <laughs> I think that's awesome. He is the image of the invisible God. That's 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 and Colossians 1.15. And uh, Hebrews 1.3 says that, that Jesus Christ is the express image of God's person. In fact, that one's worth looking at. Let me go there real quick. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3 says that, well, let me start over. Uh, beginning with verse 1, God who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, or just by Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom he also made the worlds, who, this is Jesus Christ, being the brightness of his glory. All right? The brightness of his glory. Brightness <clears throat> is one of those words. It is the Greek word apogsma. And... It's a word that isn't translated into English real easily. And it's, it is the, the shining forth, the outbeaming of God's own personal glory, his magnificence. Okay, that's what Jesus Christ is. Jesus Christ is the outbeaming into creation, the emanation into creation, visibly the glory of God. That's what Jesus Christ is. And it says he is the express image of his person. That word express image is one word. It's the Greek word character. Jesus Christ is the character of God. He is what you see and he's all you will see about God. 
So that is a very potent verse right there. Um, and he is the character of that God lived out in our sight. I've got to hurry up here. We're almost done. John 1, 1 through 4. I'm going to go back and read these again. Ooh, whose is that anyway? Is it your turn, Christy, or Matthew? Them. Yep. You're reading the last one there, those uh, four verses in John 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled the word of the word of life. For the life was manifested, and we have seen it, and bear witness, and shew, shew you, shew upon you that eternal life, which was with the Father, and was manifested unto us. That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you, that we also may have fellowship with it. I feel like I'm reading something a lawyer has written. <laughs> And truly, our, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things write we unto you that your joy may be full. Okay. That which was from the beginning, the RK, which we have, and, and what was from the beginning? What was there? This, and this goes back before the beginning. Before, this, is, this is before Genesis 1-1 right here. What was there before Genesis 1-1? Just God. Just God. Nothing else. There wasn't even nothing. There just was God. All right? That which was from the beginning. So let's look at this again. Which we have what? Heard. We've heard. We've heard. We have heard that which was from the beginning. This unknowable transcendent God. We've heard him. And which we have what? Seen with our eyes? Whoa! Which we have what? Looked upon, and our hands have what? Handled. Handled of the word of life. We have seen it. We bear witness. We show unto you that eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested unto us. That which we have seen, we have heard. You checking this out? Yeah, Jesus Christ is the faithful and true witness. He perfectly fulfills all four rules of translation. Let me go back and read those again. The translation must not read or sound like a translation. Okay, it must be read and sound like the, the thought originated in the new, the new language. He is the perfect translation of God. The, rule number two, the translator must be faithful to the original author's personality and style. Everything that God is, Jesus Christ is. The translation, number three, must produce the same effect on those who read or heard it as the original did on those who read and heard it. That is absolutely critical right there. When you go back into the Old Testament and you see when men came into the presence of God and experienced him like Isaiah in chapter 6 and Job in chapter uh, 36, I think, all the way through the end, um, Moses in uh, Exodus 33, these men were profoundly impacted by what they saw and heard. Okay, they all, they all and, and there's more than that, that's just three examples, they all were deeply impacted by the revelation of God. 
Well, you take that same thing into the New Testament. What happened when Peter, when, when you know, all these fish are there in the boat and Peter realizes who this is in the boat with him? It says, now the, the, the verse in, I think it's in Lucas, says, now when Peter saw it, well, the word it is italicized. It was when Peter saw. It's actually the Greek word gnosko, which means knew. When Peter knew who this was in the boat with him, he fell down at Jesus' knees and said, depart from me. For I'm a sinful man. I don't even belong in your presence. Isn't that the same thing Isaiah said? Isaiah said, ah, look at me. I see you and then I see me and I think, man, I'm a mess. I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. In fact, everybody around me is people with unclean lips. The same effect, okay? He is the perfect translation. The same effect that people had when they came into the presence of the God of the Old Testament is the same thing that happened to everybody when they came into the presence of Jesus Christ and when they got the realization of who he was. Okay? I just, this totally flicks my switch. Number four, and finally, the one rule of translation most translators have ignored. A translation versus a paraphrase or interpretation must accurately bring over every word from the original into the new language. Okay? Jesus Christ is everything there is to know about God. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the perfect translation of God into human, human terms. Mm. Yeah. He so perfectly translates God into our language, into the realm of creation, into the existence of human beings, that it seems to we who have seen and heard him that God originated in our own language. Yeah, that's what you see when you look in the New Testament. And second, when people see this Jesus, they cannot help but notice there is none of our personality and style in him. But what we see is that which is the creator. Because Jesus says and does only what he sees the Father do. Third, when we see or hear Jesus Christ, there is a profound change in us. When we hear him speak, we say things like, never a man spake like this before, like John 7, 46. Yet, as incredibly high above our thoughts as his words may be, they never cause us to, to doubt his genuine humanity. He was absolutely human, but he was absolutely God. When we see him, we are deeply convinced that the man must be God. And we fall on our faces and cry out and say things like, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. That was what Peter said in Luke 5.8. Or as Job said, I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. And I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. Mm. Job was incredibly and profoundly moved by what he saw. Isaiah said, woe is me for I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips for mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So when we truly see Jesus Christ or hear him speak, we are as dramatically and permanently changed as was the void when the creator first defined himself and said, let there be light. So Jesus Christ produces the same effect on us 
that the Creator had on the void of nothingness. Mm -hmm. Fourth, when you see and hear Jesus Christ, nothing of the heart and the mind of God is left out. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. That's Colossians 2.9. So Jesus Christ is the only translation of God that brings over to our limited human comprehension everything that God has to say to all of his creation. Romans 1.19-20 Because that which may be known of God is manifest. How was, how was that manifest? In the person of Jesus Christ. For God has showed it to them. For the invisible things from him, from the creation of the world, are clearly seen. Being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. There's no excuse to not know God. Not when he wants so much to be known. And Jesus Christ is the complete translation into human of everything that can be said or written about God. That's what those scriptures about the Alpha and the Omega, uh, Revelation 1.8 and 1.11 are saying. So we are the people who have seen and heard the one and only faithful and true witness. Jesus Christ is the faithful and true witness of God, the beginning of the creation of God. So... The second point of this message to us who have received the benefit of the revelation of Jesus Christ, to us who have seen and heard him and who know him to be God manifest, made visible, made known in the flesh, to us who know that he is the faithful and true witness, the perfect translation of God into creation, it is to us that he gives the particular and special calling that can be fulfilled by no other people. And that is found in Isaiah 43 and Acts 1.8. Isaiah 43, he says, Ye are my witnesses, saith the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that ye may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, neither shall there be after me. I, even I am the Lord, and beside me there is no Savior. I have declared, I have saved, I have showed when there was no strange God among you. Therefore, ye are my witnesses, saith the Lord, that I am God. And Jesus in Acts 1, 8 says, But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me. Not witnesses to Pentecost, as an essential experience that is, not witnesses uh, to water baptism in the name of Jesus Christ, even though that's essential, not witnesses unto uh, holiness or our church or anything witnesses unto him we are to be faithful and true witnesses unto him that he is God that Jesus Christ is God ah. I didn't get through this as quickly as I thought I might okay let me skip down a little bit. Finally, we come to the third point and the conclusion. Jesus Christ is the perfect translator of deity into humanity, making the incomprehensibility of the unknowable God completely understandable 
to the hearts and minds of men. This is big, big stuff right here. This really is. He is the one who fully declares the God that no man can see. He is the bodily manifestation of all the fullness of the Godhead. He is the faithful and true witness, and he is even more. He is also the perfect translator of humanity into a heavenly existence. Just as he was able to translate Enoch that he should not see death, so he is able to make us to become partakers of the divine nature. He's going to translate us too. Mm -hmm. All right, I'm going to stop there. Any questions, any comments? Millions of questions <laughs> What's that? Millions of questions and comments. I'm yeah. So much information. That's, that one is going to be worth listening to again. It oh, really and is. Again, and again. Yeah. And again. Yeah. The first time I, I heard Brother Reedout do this live uh, down in Sacramento, it blew my mind. Well, so I mean, it. yeah. But when he, when, 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 when the final thought was Jesus Christ is the perfect translation of God into humanity, just, it's, it's, it's big stuff. It really is. It's, it's awesome. Awesome language. Awesome uh, thinking. I just realized I forgot to pray before we started. Would you like to pray in closing? Sure. Dear God, thank you, dear Jesus, thank you for this time that we have here that thank you wanted us to know for eternity. Um, it's hard to learn. Some it's harder for more than others. And one has to have a genuine desire and not just do the works. And especially when you know the difference, it is much harder especially when you don't necessarily want it, but you know you need it. So I ask that you continue to communicate with us as we go through this troubling time, and as it will only get worse, and as we, because we will need to be close, we will need you more than, and we need you more and more as time goes on, as it seems like it's the ending of a significant country.